with announcements out of the way, let us go ahead and get ready for our teaching this morning. We are continuing in our series on the life of David, and so this morning we are going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 26. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 26 as we get ready to uh, look at what we have to learn here today. We will be covering the whole chapter, but to start, I'm only going to read the beginning of it, and then as we walk through the sermon, we're going to look at the rest of it, okay? So I'm just going to get us started off in the reading with the beginning of it, setting the scene, and then we will walk through it step-by-step as we go, okay? But th- this is a really, really great story. I mean, First Samuel is just, First Second Samuel just filled with some of the most incredible stories in Scripture, so every week is, is a blast going through this series, so... Once again, 1 Samuel chapter 26, if you are turning there, if you don't have your Bible with you, you can't find it, that's okay. You can read it on the uh, screens next to me. All right, guys, well, if we're all about ready, we'll go ahead and get started here, looking at 1 Samuel chapter 26, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, David is hiding on the hill of Hakalah, opposite Jeshimon. So Saul, accompanied by 3,000 of the fit young men of Israel, went immediately to the wilderness of Ziph to search for David there. Saul camped beside the road at the hill of Hakalah, opposite Jeshimon. David was hiding in the wilderness and discovered that Saul had come there after him. So David sent out spies and knew for certain that Saul had come. Immediately, David went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw the place where Saul Saul and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, were lying down. Saul was inside the inner circle of the camp with his troops camped around him. Then David asked Ahimelech the Hethite and Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zariah, who will go with me into the camp to Saul? I'll go with you answered Abishai. So we're going to pause there. Like I said, we are going to then work through the rest of this one. Uh, Now that we just have the context and the scene set for what is happening here in this passage, we're going to walk through it as we go. But just to give you a recap of what we have looked at the past couple of weeks, uh, because there is a common theme uniting these three chapters that we have been looking at uh, today in the past couple of weeks, there's the common themes going through chapters 24, 25, and the 26, which we're looking at today. And those are these common themes of patience, waiting for God to move, waiting for God to uh, bring justice, fulfill a promise, whatever else it might be. So patience in waiting on God and practicing restraint as well. Uh, practicing restraint, and we could apply in a lot of different ways, practicing restraint, whether that be uh, waiting for God to bring justice, practicing restraint in uh, if it is a promise or that, that we believe God has given us, if it is a calling uh, or way that we're waiting on him to move, not taking the situation into, con- uh, not taking control of the situation into our own hands, right? And in, in, in a move that will be impatient, not trusting in God to do his work. So there's these common themes going through these chapters of, of patience, waiting on God to move, practicing restraint. Going back to chapter 24, Whenever Saul went into the cave where David and his men were hiding to relieve himself, it says, and his men were telling him, this is it, this is the time, let's go get Saul, and David has to hold his men back and practice restraint. Then going to chapter 25, there's this episode where, where Nabal, this fool who was a very rich and wealthy man, had uh, committed an injustice and acted wickedly against David and his men. But this time, David doesn't practice restraint. This time, he decides to take out his own vengeance upon Nabal and and his household, but he's stopped by the restraining power of uh, Nabal's wife, Abigail, right? God then moves by intervening with Abigail. He then moves by bringing justice down on Nabal, by striking him dead, and then David learns from it. And then we we go into chapter 25, where once again, there's going to be an opportunity for David to take Saul's life. It's placed before him. Here, once again, is an opportunity for David to take control of the situation into his own hands, 
and he's going to have to practice patience and restraint once again. So these themes are uniting these chapters. It's important that we see that all together. And whenever you look at them as a whole, what you see happening is we see uh, David maturing. It's really cool to see this. We see David maturing from, in chapter 24, we can call it some early success, but then having a, having a failure or a near, near disaster failure in chapter 25, uh, yeah, 25, if he would have gone through with slaying Nabal in his household, to here in 26, where he, he now has a more, uh, more stable, more deeply informed and mature faith to operate upon. And I just want to point out, like, how encouraging is that to see David, the man after God's own heart, the king who set up the dynasty through which God sends his Messiah? How great is it to see David go through this period of maturing and growing that looks so similar to, the, to ours? Whenever we look at David in these three chapters, doesn't it look often really similar to your own life? How you can look at your own life and your, you can look at your Christian walk and your relationship with God and point out some early successes. Right? You can see maybe how earlier on you, you had, uh, maybe it was more enthusiasm. Maybe it, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it just came natural and easy to obey. Or maybe like to, to share your faith or do whatever else. But then you, you go into these cycles where you kind of dip down in terms of your obedience or whatever it might be, and, and you struggle. You have some failures. You ask yourself, why do I not feel as strong as before and whatever else? But what we learn through David here is that God uses all of these moments, your best, but then also your failures. And uh, if you work with him, he uses them to grow you into a stronger, more mature, a greater faith-filled believer, right? That's what we see happening in David here. It's great to know that David experienced that and we experience it in our own life. So what I want to look at here is David's more mature faith. David's more mature faith in this, uh, in this chapter here and what we can learn about the faith that matures through trials, wins, losses, and so on. Okay, David has four speeches, four, four short speeches in this passage, and we're going to use those four speeches to learn a lesson from as we, work, as we walk through this story here in 1 Samuel chapter 26. We're going to look at David's patience, David's encouragement, David's distress, and then David's hope. All right? So his patience, his encouragement, his distress, and his hope. Let's begin with David's patience with his first speech. So I read to you already how they, Saul discovers this general area where David is. David discovers that Saul has now come after him. And so he, he finds out where Saul's encamped and he decides that he's going to go, he's going to take a mission to go into the camp. Um, he doesn't exactly state his purposes, what he's doing, but he says, I'm going into the camp. And he looks at a couple guys next to him. He says, who's going to come with me? And this man named uh, Abishai decides, he says, I'm going to go with you, David. I'll be the one to go. So they go together, and, they, and it says that Saul is sleeping in the middle of the camp. So Saul came with 3,000 uh, fit warriors, right? So he is ready for battle. They are greatly outmatched. And the camp was set up in, in such a way that right there in the middle would be the place where the king's tent was, where he would sleep, and right next to him would be the captain of his guard, one of his top generals, a man named Abner. Abner was actually Saul's uncle. He was in charge of Saul's security, keeping him protected, keeping him safe. So right there in the middle of this 3,000-man army is Saul sleeping with his top security, right? His, uh, right, uh, his, uh, what, what's the security around the president called? I can't remember. <laughs> secret service. He's got his secret service right there around him, right? Ready to keep him protected. And so David grabs uh, Abishai, and they go into the camp. They sneak all the way through the camp. They make it past, you know, in the dead of night, in the quiet, as, they're, as these men are sleeping. They sneak their way all the way through the camp, and they get to the center where they find Saul. And they are able to go all the way up to where Saul is sleeping. And here's where we read. In verse 8, whenever they come up to where Saul is, and with Abner and his troops lying all around him, in verse 8 it says, Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him, for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? David added, As the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. However, because of the Lord, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
Instead, take the spear and the water jug by his head and let's go. So you have this scene where they come, here's Saul sleeping, and he has his, his spear, right, uh, uh, his, his, that he would go into battle with. The spear, which in itself was a symbol of his kingdom and of his rule. It was a, it was a symbol of his, of his power. His spear is right there on the ground next to him, and Abishai says, this is it, let's take him out now. He says, I, I can take that spear and nail him into the ground like, like wood, into the, like a nail into the wall, right, and we'll be done with this. And David has to hold him back and say, no, that's not how this is going to go. It's a scene which, once again, looks very reminiscent of, it, 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 it parallels, it reminds, it's like having deja vu of the time that Saul was in the cave back in chapter 24. His men are ready to go and get him, and David has to hold them back. David, it says, had to tear them apart with his words to hold them back. But this time it's a little different. This time, whenever David uh, has, holds Abishai back and he tells him that's not how this is going to go, you know, instead we're going to take a spear, this time David shows a deeper patience. Whenever he explains why they're not going to get him, David shows a little bit more of, um, of an informed patience and an informed restraint where he says why we are not going to get him. He says the same thing in that I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. He said that before, back in chapter 24. That was very important to David. Saul, regardless of his actions, regardless of his wickedness, was still God's anointed, right? And David said, it would be wrong for me to take uh, the kingdom into my own hands. But he says a little bit more here. He, tr- he completely trusts that this entire situation is in God's hands. He says, as certainly as the Lord lives, the Lord might do this, right? He, he's going to take care of Saul. He's going to take care of me. And until that day, <coughs> and until that day, Right? I'm going to have to wait. David trusts that this entire situation is securely in God's hands. We see that David's faith in God to be faithful and to fulfill his promises is what enables him to practice patience here in this situation. And so this is our first point, which is that faith informs and enables our patience. Faith informs and enables our patience. I, I just noticed I have a typo in my notes, and sure enough, it's there. Patiences. So every time you got to be patiences, your faith should inform and enable it for all those patiences you've got, all right? But because of what David has learned over these situations that we've seen, right, there's this common theme uniting it. David goes through this season where God is teaching him something, and because of these lessons David has learned, because of what God is teaching him, through the intervention of Abigail before and so on, right? He, his, his, his patience has now been informed by his faith, which gives him a deeper, stronger patience to operate upon and to trust God in to do his work, right? Notice his, his imagination in, chapter, in, in, not chapter, in verse 10. He says, as certainly as the Lord lives, he will strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. Note, he, he says like three different things here. He says, you know, God might just strike him down, just like he did to Nabal. If you, if you read chapter 25 last week, then you know that God struck down Nabal by giving him a heart attack, stroke, something like that, and then eventually took his life from him. He just struck him down. And David realizes, you know what? God might do the same thing with Saul. He might strike him down. Or, you know what? Saul just might eventually come to his day of old age, of sickness, whatever else, and die from that. Or who knows? He might go into battle and die. Notice what's happening here. Because of what David has been through, the lessons he's learned, his faith being grown through it all, he has a greater imagination to work with now of how God might fulfill his promises. He's able to say, look, God can work in so many different ways. He said, God is so big. He is so powerful. He is so sovereign. He might do this. He might do that. He might do this, right? But God has got it. Notice what this does. Whenever our faith in God is grown, whenever we're able to say that whatever situation I'm going through in my life, God has it in control and he has it in his hands, what that does is that faith in a big God inspires a faith-filled imagination. Faith in a big God inspires a faithful or a faith-filled imagination where because of what you've been through in the the past and all the ways that God has come through for you, and you now have all those stories, 
As we sing in Come Thou Fountain, you now have all those Ebenezers of God's faithfulness that you can look back to. You can know, and whatever you're going through now, regardless of how you might imagine the situation playing out, regardless of how you hope God is going to intervene and work, you understand he can do it in so many different ways. Right? And because he's proven himself faithful again and again, and because you know he's sovereign, right? And, and, and he is even wiser than you are, or I am, right? Like, I don't know how he's going to come through, but he can. Isn't that great? You know, this is something that I've told you guys personally. Several of you, and you know, many of you in here, as, as we've walked together through different situations, and, and you've come to me because you're, you're going through something in your life that, uh, that you don't know how it's going to play out, and you're hoping God comes through. Whether it's a difficult conversation that you're going to have to have with somebody, a, a boss, or maybe a family member, or it, it is just a, a hard situation that you're going through in your career, or whatever else it might be. We, you know, you come to me, we talk through it, we talk about that fear, we talk about how can we trust in God, and, and often one of the things that I've told you guys, you know this is true, is I say to you, look, do not get caught up in anxiety. Do not get overwhelmed. Stop playing through in your mind the worst case scenario because you have no idea how God can come through. He might come through in the most surprising of ways that you just did not expect. I'm not saying it's going to be this, uh, this miracle, right? But I'm saying it might just be so subtle and simple that you never could have expected it, but that's how God does it. You have that conversation, and God worked in that person's heart. He prepared them, and whatever worst-case scenario you have playing out in your mind, it doesn't go that way at all, right? That, that job you're waiting to come through for you, right, or, or, or some door that you're waiting to open, right? God can open it in so many different ways, or he might have another door waiting to open for you that you don't even see yet, but he just needs you to sit here and wait right? Because he's got that door opening for you. It's coming, right? I've told you guys this uh, many, many times whenever we, we talk together, and I know from walking with you through the situations, he always comes through, doesn't he? He comes through, and he often does so in the most surprising of ways. Faith in a big God inspires a faith-filled imagination. You see, the reason that I wanted to talk about this is because I think one thing that faith does is it often wakens up our sluggish, dull minds, so often, our minds can become uncreative. They, they can become proud and think that, no, God must work in this way that I've thought out, right? He needs to work in, in, in this ABC, in this one, two, three steps that I've laid out, and that's the only way that he can work. That's a very proud way to think, isn't it? It's extraordinarily proud. It's extraordinarily self-centered. There, there's no faith being practiced in that at all. And so instead, if we let faith in a big God, if we let our mind be filled with the grandeur of the God that we worship and that we are in relationship with, how powerful he is, how sovereign he is, how infinitely wise he is, right? If we let our minds be filled with those things and it enlivens our faith, then it can set the mind alive that was once before dull, dark, empty, uncreative, proud. And now you can see, okay, God might work in all of these various different ways. And that can give you some peace and patience. But regardless of even if you don't know how God is going to work, we almost always know what we should do in the meantime, which is what I want us to see in David as well. David doesn't know how God's going to work. He says, you know, he, he, he says, God might do this with Saul. He might do that. He says, but I know this. It is not my job. Right? David is waiting on providence, and he doesn't know how God's providence is going to work out. But he does know this. He knows how he's supposed to obey in the meantime. That leads us to this application. Even when you don't know how God will work, you must do what obedience requires. Waiting for God to work is not an excuse to start uh, indulging in sin. It is not an excuse to start uh, playing soft with temptation, right? And, uh, and allowing, allowing temptations, allowing weaknesses, allowing sins and indulgences, even in, in, in what we might see as small things, to come into our life as a way to do a, a sort of uh, self-therapy while we are waiting for God to work. Even while we're waiting to work, for him to work, and if we don't know how he will work, we very, very often, if we're honest, or maybe if we talk with somebody who will help us see it, we know how we should obey in the meantime. Very often, even if you don't know what God is going to do, you do know what you should be doing in the moment. Even if you don't know how he's going to move in your marriage, right? 
and if you're going through some conflict or if there's something that, you, that you're not sure how it's going to work out, right? Even if you don't know how God's going to move in that, you do know that it doesn't give you permission to start having affairs, right? Right? Okay, I know that's an extreme example, but in other words, we know how we ought to obey in the meantime. We can apply that lesson to so many different issues in our life. And, and this is another thing that I know I've told you guys before. Look, okay, so you don't know how this conversation is going to go. You don't know how this is going to work out. You don't know how long you're going to be waiting in this period of limbo here. But what are the things you do know right now? And you say, well, you know, I do know that even though I'm waiting for this other job, I've got this one in front of me. Well, then do that one to your best ability, right? Or, you know, I'm having a really difficult relationship with my parents, right? All you guys going through your 20s, I'm, I'm about to be out of them. Right? All you guys going through your 20s and you're struggling with what it means now to be an adult but to, and, to, and to have parents and the changing relationship that happens there and, and the different dynamics and nuances and you're working through it and there's this conflict and you come to me on how you're supposed to deal with it and work through it. And I say to you, okay, so you don't know how mom or dad or whoever else is going to respond, but you know what you should be doing right now, right? And you say, yeah, I need to keep being honest. I need to honor and I need to do what God's telling me to do. That's right. Now, do that. Very often, if we, if we just simply look at our life, our situation, and ask, well, okay, I don't know what God's going to do, but what is he calling me to do right now? You do know. He's put it before you. It's very, it's very often very simple. Follow that until he comes through. David was practicing his imagination and how God might work, but he didn't need his imagination in order to know obedience. So this is what we learn in, the, in his first speech here, is his patience. But then we can look at the encouragement, David's encouragement that he receives because of faith. The second speech comes after they, they, they go to Saul, they take his spear and his water jug, they slowly make their way, they sneak back out of the camp, and they come up to the, to the top of the hill that was overlooking where Saul's camp was, where they were all sleeping. They come up to the top of the hill, and then David begins to shout. They decide to reveal himself, and we see this in verse 14. It says, Then David shouted to the troops, and to Abner, son of Ner, remember this was, this was uh, Saul's uh, chief security officer, aren't you going to answer, Abner? Who are you who calls the king, Abner asked. David called to Abner, you're a man, aren't you? Who in Israel is your equal? So why didn't you protect your lord the king when one of the people came to destroy him? What you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you deserve to die, since you didn't protect your lord, the Lord's anointed. Now look around. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were by his head? So here they are. They decide to reveal themselves. It is, could you imagine the shock in that moment as David stands there with the symbol of the kingdom, right? With the symbol of the king in his hand, right? Now the authority of the king in his hand as he challenges in a very confrontational way the chief officer of Saul's army. And you pretty much have to have your brain turned off if you don't ask yourself this. How was that possible, <laughs> right? An army of 3,000 men asleep at night, they're out in the wilderness, okay? So there's not tons of, like, noise out there. It'd be quiet. David and, and, and Abishai sneak through the camp all the way up to Saul, right, where he's sleeping in the middle of, of his security. They get that, and they go back. How is that possible? Well, we, we learn from verse 12. In verse 12, it says, they took this, and it says, no one saw them, no one knew, and no one woke up. They all remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord came over them. You see, that's how it was possible. Because there's this time, there, there's, because God intervened to put a deep sleep over everyone in the camp. In other words, to keep them asleep, to protect David and Abishai as they worked their way through the camp to Saul and get the spear. In other words, here's what God did in that moment. It's pretty incredible. Here's how they were able to accomplish it. God places deep sleep on a camp, right? But what God was doing is he rendered Saul powerless. He rendered Saul powerless. He rendered uh, Abner and the army powerless around him, and he disarmed him, right? Because like I said, that spear was the symbol of the kingship. That was Saul's weapon, very similar to how like the robe was the symbol of the kingship. That was a symbol of Saul's power and of his authority. What God does is he, he, may, he renders them powerless, he renders them vulnerable, and God disarms Saul. God takes the symbol of the kingdom, God takes the symbol of Saul's authority out of Saul's hand and puts it into David's hand. 
And David recognizes that, which is what makes him so, uh, so bold in his confrontation and being able to stand over them and, and with the symbol of the kingdom in his hand, right? God is giving David a clear sign of what is to come. David is practicing patience. He understands God has promised me, but I, do, I am not getting that promise yet. I still have to wait. But while he's waiting, look at what God does. He symbolically t- put, moves the kingdom into David's hands. He symbolically disarms Saul. He symbolically takes the kingdom away from Saul and allows David to stand in victory and boldness over his enemies. Right? It's not the full fruition yet, but God gives David that moment there. And if David's faith is awake, which I think it is, right? Because just the, the, the maturity and everything he shows here. If David's faith is awake, then he recognizes what God did there. He knows that he made it into that camp and out safely because God was over him. He was with him, right? That he was holding that spear because God put it into his hand. And so because David's faith was awake in that moment, he would have received that sign of encouragement, knowing that God was giving him, hey, look, I'm going to do this for you. And so here's our second major point. Faith opens us up to encouragement. Faith opens us up to encouragement. This is something that God loves to do. God loves to give his weary servants small tokens or just small evidences that he has not forgotten them and that he is still with them. Now, you might look around at your life and say, well, where are my small encouragements or tokens that God is still with me? Here's the thing. You need to be operating on faith in order to see them. God is always moving, and God is always working in our life. There are situations that you go through that, on the surface, uh, this situation might have looked extremely ordinary, right? And it might have looked very natural for a couple of warriors to sneak through a sleeping camp. In one sense, that seems like a very natural thing. But we learn, because of verse 12, that in another sense, God was moving and God was working here in this very subtle way, in a way that maybe no one would have noticed if it weren't for the faith that knows that God was at work, okay? So if David's faith would have been asleep, then he could have just looked at that situation and not seen God being at work and just seen it as all his own accomplishment. But instead, because David's faith is awake, he understands, right, that what he just done and what he had just accomplished, that it was God's doing, that God was at work here, that him holding that spear, that was God giving him that spear. And let me ask you guys, because we so often start operating in our lives as functional unbelievers, right? I'm not saying that you den- you're denying God with your lips, but, but in our hearts and in our minds, we're essentially living as if he's not there. We forget about him. We, we, we don't acknowledge him, right? We aren't, we aren't living a prayer-filled life. We aren't living a faith-filled life. And so essentially, we start living functionally as if God isn't even there, functionally as an unbeliever, we're missing all these things that God is doing, which might be subtle, which like in David's situation here on the surface, we might not see God at work, but if we have the eyes of faith, we'll understand that he's moving and we're missing all these encouragements that he has for you. Some of you guys are going through hard situations and you're going through hard times and you're praying and you're looking for those tokens. You're you're, you're saying, Lord, come through. Lord, give me these encouragements. And you might be surrounded by them. He might be doing all kinds of things. But because you're so focused on the problem, rather than being filled with faith, you aren't seeing them. Does that make sense? So the question is, look, because God, lo- he, God doesn't just do this for David. He loves doing this for all of his weary servants. Do you have the eyes to see it? Are you living more filled by faith than you are filled by the fear or anxiety of whatever you're going through? so that you can see God's encouragement, because God's encouragement might be right before your eyes. Pray that he would help you to see it. Pray, Lord, help me to see how you are at work today. Start your day with saying, Lord, give me me the discernment to see how you are moving and how you are at work, how you are inviting me into every interaction and moment of today. You might pray that one day and not see anything, but maybe if you prayed again the next morning and the next morning and the next morning, and you continue praying that prayer and allow God to continue filling you with faith, allow God to change you, to give you the eyes to see, then you might start seeing how he's at work. You might become someone who can start to discern the difference between what just appears to be natural on the surface, but God is actually moving beneath the surface. 
Let's look at David's next speech here. In verse 19, after Abner responds to him and Saul recognizes David's voice and he calls out to him, David replies to Saul. David replies to Saul here, and he says this very interesting phrase. He's, he's, he, he says to him very similar things as he said in chapter 24. You know, once again, why are you pursuing me? Why are you doing this to me? What have I done to you? And he says this very interesting statement in verse 19. Now may my lord the king please hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. Right? In other words, if I deserve this. But, he says, but if it is people... May they be cursed in the presence of the Lord, for today they have banished me from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go and worship other gods. Now, that is a really interesting statement here. What does he mean by that? David is, is this, whole, this whole third speech here is a heart-wrenching speech, right? He, he is laying out before Saul and all these people, he's being very vulnerable and laying out his distress. And that's the heart of it right there, his distress. He says, they have banished me from the Lord's presence and said to me, go and worship other gods. What does he mean by that statement? Practically, what he means by it is that because he's been on the run and and in the wilderness, and because even Israelites have been betraying him to Saul, very often he's been forced to go into Gentile areas. He's been forced to go into other regions and cities. You might remember very early on, he was even forced to flee into a Philistine city. Uh, for, for, uh, for cover and for safety, right? And, and so that's been a common thing. He's been having to leave Israel. And, and so in a sense, whenever he leaves Israel, he's having to leave the people of God. He's being banished from the people of God every time that he has to leave because of what is happening here. And, that's, and, and in one sense, that's what he means by they have banished me and said, go and worship other gods. But we, we need to look at this a little bit deeper because what is at the core of David's distress here? The core of his distress in his running through the wilderness and running for his life, the core of his distress in all of his running and being in the wilderness and going to different areas is that he feels cut off from God. That's what he means, right? That's the only way to make sense of these deeply emotional statements that he makes in his, in his, being, in his talking about being cut off from the inheritance of God. And he goes on the next passage to say, not in this translation, but in other translations, it says that he, he feels cut off from the face of God. The core of David's distress is that he feels cut off. He feels distant from God. And this leads us to another point about a mature faith. Faith causes distress when we are distant from God. Faith causes us distress when we are distant from God. We all know that there are times whenever we, we feel distant from God, whether it be or most often, if it is because of our own forgetfulness, we quit acknowledging him, right? We, we, we quit praying to him, we quit seeing how he's at work in our life, or we start indulging in sin for a period of time. You go through what you know, we very often call like a backsliding time, right? And you start to feel distant from God. Uh, the truly faithful person, will, their faith will cause them distress in that time. Because that which they once operated on, which was being near to God, which was experiencing relationship with him, whenever that is removed from the life of a true believer, they will feel distress. This is actually one of the ways, friends, that you can test your salvation. This is one of the ways that you can know that you truly do belong to God. If whenever you go through those times of feeling distant from him, are you distressed? Whenever you sin, does it break your heart knowing that you have that you have been uh, that you have separated yourself from Him by your decision? Does faith, when you are not near God, cause distress in your heart, or are you as just as comfortable? Does it not cause any distress at all in your heart or turmoil when you are not near to Him? The heart of a truly saved person, and of a person who truly lives by faith in God and the faith that justifies will be distressed when they are not near him. Whenever they know that they are not as near to him as they could be, or not as near to him as you once were, that's what David feels. Let me give you a couple more thoughts on David's distress here. The first one is this. For all that he has endured, living in the wood, just put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in his sandals for a moment. He's been, he's been running through the wilderness Right for it doesn't give us an exact timeline here, but it's been a while. He's been running through the wilderness, living as a uh, as an outlaw. He's been he's faced all these injustices, not just by Saul, but by Nabal, 
by the Israelites who continue giving him up, telling, telling Saul where he is. After all he's been through in this, this hard, hard life, if David was to give you a list of his grievances, or if you were to have gone through that, and you were to give a list of grievances, would feeling cut off from God be at the top of your list? I'm afraid looking at myself, I would have said, you know, not having a bed, <laughs> right? Not having this or that or all, the, all these other luxuries or, or the, the inconvenience or the hurt or whatever else. I'm, I'm afraid that if I was being honest, I would have put that at the top of my list. In fact, you know what? I don't live as an outlaw out in the wilderness, but very often at the end of the week, if I were to give you a list of my grievances, that wouldn't end up at the top of the list. But for David, what matters to him more than anything else is God. And feeling distant from God is something that causes him so much more distress than anything else about living life in the wilderness as an outlaw on the run. That's the first thing. God matters to him more than anything else. And then secondly is this. You know, we might, we might say to ourselves, David, even though you're going into Gentile areas and you're in caves and you're on the run, that doesn't mean you have to feel cut off from God because don't you know that you can worship God anywhere? Right? D- David, don't you know that you can worship God out on a nice mountain hike? Right? And that whenever you see the sunrise, that you can feel and experience God through that. David, come on, don't you know all this, David? Look, David knew, and, and I think that he very well understood that God is omnipresent, right? In other words, that God is everywhere, and that he can pray to God, and that he can worship God from anywhere. But, but here's the thing, is that David understands that just because God is everywhere, it's different from being able to worship along with the people of God in, in, in the temple, in the tabernacle. You see, for David, it was not enough to just have his personal relationship with God out on the wilderness. But David wanted to be able to worship God along with the people of God in the tabernacle, in Israel, right? In the place of worship. It was not enough for him to just have God out in the wilderness. There's a commentator named Dale Ralph Davis. And he said this, he said, He was being shut out of the land and sanctuary where Yahweh met with his people. To be cut off from the ordinances of public worship is David's most severe grief. Would that cause me anguish? Christians have surpassed David in privileges, but few have approached him in appetite. I think that that for very many of us, even for some of the most committed of us, very often we do not take our, our participation in public worship along with the people of God enjoying in the public ordinances as seriously as David does. I think that, that there are too many of us for, for whom uh, being involved in public corporate worship along with the people of God is not enough of a priority. I think there are too many of us, especially in the post-COVID world, who have become too comfortable with cyber services, with live streams, and with whatever else it might be, right? We do not have the same kind of appetite just like David says, we have such greater privileges than David had, right? But we don't have the same appetite to be with the people of God in corporate worship, worshiping God. For David, it was not enough to just have God alone and out in the wilderness, but he wanted to be a part of the inheritance. What he meant by that was with the people, in the tabernacle, with the ordinances, What David has learned in the wilderness is where his help really lies and what his life really depends upon. Whenever you're going through distress, do you see God as your greatest need? Could you say like David that no matter whatever kind of distress you might be going through, a wilderness season, that that in the midst of it, you don't see whatever the particulars of that situation might be, but instead you see God as your greatest need in that. That is what David came to learn, what we see here in chapter 26. What we have in this chapter is the last meeting between Saul and David. This is the last time that they would ever see one another, that they would ever speak to one another before Saul eventually dies. That's going to come in a couple of chapters, and then David is able to go and, uh, and eventually take his throne over Israel. This is the last meeting and conversation that we have between the two of them. We see it in 21. After David gives this very emotional, vulnerable 
uh, appeal to Saul, Saul says to him, is that Saul responds, I have sinned. Come back, my son, David. I will never harm you again, because today you considered my life precious. I have been a fool. I've committed a grave error. Notice David's answer. David answered, here's the king's spear. Have one of your young men come and get it. The Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and loyalty. I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord handed you over to me today. Just as I considered your life valuable today, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all trouble. Saul responded to him, and then it says they each went on their own way. This is their last meeting here. And it looks as though Saul has this change of mind, right? Doesn't it look like Saul has this great awakening, right, that he's finally learned? He says, he says David, oh, I've been a fool against you, and I have sinned against you. Come back home, my son. But David doesn't accept Saul's crocodile tears. He says, come get your spear. He says, may the Lord judge between us. But then when you look at uh, verse 1 of 27, if you were to continue on, it says, David said to himself, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. David, once again, he doesn't seem moved by Saul's crocodile tears here in this passage. Let me give you a couple of points, a couple of insights from this last conversation between Saul and David and David's response and, and, and finishing off with David's hope and our hope. A couple of insights. The first one is this. David models a healthy skepticism of the promises of tyrants. David models for us how we ought to as well have a healthy skepticism of the promises of tyrants. Now, I do not just mean tyrants in the governmental sense, right? Because Saul was, was, was the king. He was a tyrant king. He was the government, and he's given these promises to David. And so, in one sense, I do think that is true. I think that we ought to have a healthy skepticism of the promises of governmental tyrants as well. But this applies also to, to those people in our lives who are wannabe tyrants or who act like tyrants in, in the way that they operate, whether that be someone in your family, whether that be someone in your workplace, or whoever else. David models for us how we ought to have a healthy skepticism of the promises of tyrants. But if we're going to operate, and if we are not going to live by fear from tyrants, right, and we are instead going to operate by faith in God and, and, and living righteously, doing what we ought to do, what are we going to do if we cannot, if we are going to have a healthy skepticism of their promises, right? In other words, what promises will we place our hope in? And that's the second insight. David models for us a healthy skepticism, but he also models for us how to properly hope. In verse 24, once again, he said, Just as I considered your life valuable today, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all troubles. You see, Saul had just promised to rescue him from his troubles. Saul had just said to him, in a sense, your troubles are over now. Come home. This is over. We're good. I've come to my senses. But what do we see in David at the end? He's skeptical, and he says, may God rescue me from all my troubles. Friends, where do we put our hope, and where does our hope truly lie? Where is the only uh, 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 reliable place that we can place our hope in? It is not in the promises of tyrants, and it is not in the promises of, of any person. It is not in the promise of any person that we know in our, in our individual lives, and it is not in the promises of any politician or corporate leader or, of, or, or cultural uh, thinker or pundit or whoever else. Our promises cannot lie. I mean, our hope cannot lie in their promises, but our hope must lie in the promises of God. What we see here is that faith casts our hope in God. The way that David was able to move forward and what he had learned after this, this season of going through uh, patience and restraint and waiting on God and so on was this, that the only reliable place that he could place his hope that would keep him obeying, that would keep him in the, on the right righteous path, right, would be in God. Understanding that it was God who would be the one to rescue him. And the same thing is true for our lives. It is only in the promises of God that we have a reliable place to cast our hope. But how can we know? David was God's chosen king to replace Saul, but we are just, we are not chosen kings, right? How can we have faith and trust in, the, in, in God? Where does our hope come from? We see in the New Testament whenever Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, 
verse 2, Paul says, We have also obtained access through him, that being Jesus, by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul says that the very same hope that was poured out into David's heart and that he operated upon can be a hope that is poured into our heart, a hope that is forged and proven and built even through our afflictions and as our character is built and a hope that will not let us down. What is the grounding of that hope and why do we know that that hope will not let us down? Because Paul says this, the hope is based in the God who loved us. As God's love is poured into our hearts, along with that proportionally, our hope can grow. God's love pours into our hearts for this, Paul says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person someone perhaps might even dare to die, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, if you can recognize this infinite demonstration of God's love for you, that while you were still a sinner, that before you had made any choice, before you had made any decision, before you had made any turning of your mind or repentance in your heart, before you had done any right thing to please God, and while you could do nothing to please him, while you were still a sinner, he loved you enough to send his son to die for you. At your absolute worst, he loved you enough. While you were a sinner, and while that was your primary identity above anything else, while even in that state, he loved you enough to die for you. While you were absolutely unworthy, on your worst of days, just as much on your best of days, he proves his love for you. And that while you're still a sinner, Christ died for you. Could there be any greater demonstration of love? That's what, that's what Paul is getting at. He's saying, he's saying, you know, sometimes people die for a just person. Sometimes people die for the person they love. But who would die for, an, for a wicked person? Who would die for their enemy? You see, that is how incredibly infinite and great the love of God is, is that he would die for a wicked people. He would die for his enemies. He would die for sinners. So that whenever his love is poured out into our heart, it would produce faith, faith that builds character, faith that builds hope, and that hope that won't let us down. If you are struggling to ground your hope, if it's very shaking, if it's some days you have it and some days you don't, and some days it's high, some days it's low, look, let me tell you this. You know why? It's probably because your hope is being based on your own performance. You're doing good one day. You had your devotion that morning. You're not sinning as much. You're being more patient or kind or whatever else it is, and you're filled with hope on that day because suddenly you're telling yourself, I've been so good today. Of course God's going to come through for me. But then on the next day and the day after that and however many other days it is where you're not living as righteously and as obedient and you don't feel as good about your performance, then you start to wonder, oh boy, <laughs> you know, I'm doing bad. God's probably not going to come through for me. And that's most likely why your hope goes up and down and up and down because it's, it's based on your own performance rather than based on the love of God. Because if your hope is based in the love of God that was proven for you while your performance was at zero, while it was in the negatives, then you would understand now, okay, no matter how well my days go, no matter how, how greatly I'm obeying one day and how much I screw it up the next, because my hope is based in God's unchanging love for me that was proven for me while I was at my worst, then the hope doesn't have to go down whenever my performance goes down. And Paul, you notice that he, he starts that passage, he starts it with hope and he ends it with hope because it kind of happens in a cycle, right? That hope builds character and character builds hope and that hope builds character and that character builds hope and so on. Going through the afflictions and the afflictions building character, character producing hope and then back through, right? You see, you can become somebody who might have an unshakable grounding of hope in your life that actually produces obedience in your life. 
and that even the times when you go through affliction and then you don't obey as you should, that groaning of hope is still there. You struggle, you have your wins, your losses, but you, but you have faith, but God is still with me. God still loves me. He proved his love for me even whenever I was at my worst, so he's, he's still with me now. You, then your faith grows a little bit more in your character with it, and so on, and so on, and so on. So that you might become someone who, though in your office you aren't a king or a queen, you have the character of one like David. That is my hope, that we would, in this church and in our city, uh, be filled, a, a local congregation filled with people who have the character of royalty, the attitudes of, of, of royalty, of being God's anointed, of being people who have been loved by God, chosen by God, and have their hope in God, that it might produce righteousness in your lives, right? that then bring glory to God in the world as, as the message of the gospel goes out and changes our city. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we ask that you would, that you would show us, Father, how we have not been experiencing patience, how we have not been seeing or, or experiencing encouragement, how we have had a shaky hope because, Lord, we have been so focused on ourselves. We've been so focused on ourselves, we've been so focused on our problems, and we haven't been focused on you. We think that the greatest issues in our lives is this person or that person or this situation or that or, or this, this door that won't open, Lord. But we don't look at you and say, no, the greatest problem is that we are not as near to you as we could be. We're not as focused on you as we could be. And if we could be uh, more focused on you, more, uh, more trusting in you, then that will bring patience. We will start to see the small tokens of your encouragement, and they would give us an unshakable grounding of hope by which we could obey and build righteousness and character. Lord, I pray that for all of us here today. Let us look at the cross of Christ where you proved, where you demonstrated, where you showed your love once and for all for us so that we might never have to doubt and wonder. Lord, let that beautiful good news Fill our hearts. Lord, pour your heart, your love out into our hearts this morning as uh, Paul wrote about so that as our, our hearts and souls are filled to the brim and overflow with your love, that it might also overflow with hope, patience, and good works. We pray this in your name. Amen.